Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. What's up, what's up? CJ Gustafson, the Waka Flocka Flame of Net Dollar Retention. I just got off the old podcast with Razak Jallo, CFO of Flowcast. And usually we do a mailbag question from someone who writes in. We got a couple of good hitters this week, but I'm going to save them for future podcast intros because he actually flipped the table on me at one point and he asked me a question on my own podcast. Woo! And he asked me what I learned about trying to start my own marketplace business back in the day, now that I'm CFO of a marketplace business. I wasn't really expecting it. I answered it and we got into it for a couple minutes, but I actually wanted to go deeper into what he asked me. For those who don't know, I lost, calculator going, $209,640 of my own money trying to start a business. Yeah, straight cash out the pocket. And Failure sucks. Anyone who tells you that, hey, I, I learned something and I'm better for it, that is true, but it really does hurt in the moment. And so some quick context on how I lost all this money. So me and my wife, we tried to start a marketplace for last minute tours and activities. So I would think about this as Hotel Tonight meets Open Table meets Class Pass. And so the idea was, hey, we'll bring live connectivity to this industry where 80% of bookings were still done using pen and paper. And we worked on this for three years while holding down full-time jobs. And we were working nights and weekends on it. We actually relocated from the Northeast where, you know, you only have tourism maybe three months a year because it gets cold and stuff, uh, down to Florida. And we were going up and down the coast trying to go to these starter cities, if you will. So, like, we didn't want to go straight to Miami and try it and fall flat on our faces. You know, start in Tampa, start in St. Petersburg, Florida, try to find hyper-local product market fit. The first mistake I think we made was we didn't differentiate between technical risk and execution risk. So everyone has an idea for a marketplace, spoiler alert, because they don't actually require you to build like a standalone unique product. And the technical barriers to entry are usually lower than something that's super high tech like cybersecurity. And so everyone, if you think about like having beers with your friends when they talk about a business idea, a lot of times they're talking about an idea that just requires them to be middleman, linking two sides. But it is harder than you think. You do have to build two businesses, kind of. You have to build for two sides, not just one. And so the technical risk may be lower, but the execution risk is super high. Lesson number two that I learned was to never be 100% dependent on someone else's data. And so that's another inherent flaw in marketplace businesses where you partner with companies to give you like inventory data. But if they cut you off, you're totally screwed. Data would never be our competitive moat because we didn't own it. So if I ever start a business again, I'm going to own the data. I'm going to build it bottoms up with data that I have proprietary ownership over. The next thing I learned was don't try to build everything at once. So we went ham. We tried to build a website, an Android app, an iOS app before even finding product market fit. When I wrote about this and posted on Hacker News, every single engineering growth practitioner jumped down my throat and said I was the biggest idiot ever. Yes, I know. I know. Don't try to do literally everything under the sun before you find one method of distribution that works and then punch that until your hand bleeds and then move on to the next thing. Start small and get just one platform right, especially if you're paying someone else to do the coding. Spoiler alert, a lot of the money went to coding because your boy can't code. And that was a huge lesson I learned as well. Don't make everything reliant on code if you can't code. I felt so freaking helpless like a thousand times knowing 
what needed to be done, but I couldn't jump in and just do it. It's not like an Excel spreadsheet where someone sends me a model. I'm like, don't worry, I got this. I'll put the team on my back. It was like, no, I'm calling somebody overseas to fix this. And that ate away. It felt like stomach acid just rising in my throat every day, not being able to, to fix it. And then the next lesson I learned is that even though I was investing my own money in it, no outside institutional VC angel investor was going to invest because I wasn't willing to quit my day job at the time. It was kind of interrelated that I was using my day job and the money I'd saved up. But like if I never took the leap full time and if me and my wife never did it full time, no one would ever cut a check because it wouldn't show we were truly invested from their perspective. The next thing that we learned was that adding more features is a super expensive distraction. Product 101 is that just get your core job to be done right and stay the course. Don't try to go with all the bells and whistles. Next thing, as a marketplace, you can either be low frequency or low price, but you can't be both. We got caught, and this is your your my metrics mind coming at it, in this LTV to CAC trap. So basically, people go on vacation only a couple times a year, maybe once or twice, and they would have to remember us every single time. So it's a low frequency purchase and the ticket size like didn't add up so if they were buying three sixty dollar tickets for 180 bucks and we get 20 percent of that we're not left with too much to cover the customer acquisition costs especially if they don't come around and, and we can jack up the lifetime value over time with lots of ticket sales so that math didn't work the next thing was that constraints drive focus so we tried to launch first in 20 states at once didn't have the time or budget to do that also can't do it over the phone got to be there in person and build hyper local network effects and be on the ground so we originally went from usa to southern usa to florida to southwest florida then down to tampa so i do think we did that right that we eventually figured it out it took you know over a year to do that but we figured out that you had to go super narrow and build a playbook and take that everywhere else the next painful lesson was that you have to do sales. I hate sales. I hate picking up the phone and calling people. I would rather stay behind a spreadsheet. I think a lot of people are actually shocked that I do this podcast because I'm actually rather introverted in real life. And cold calling sucks. You know what sucks even more than cold calling? Knocking on doors physically, walking into a surf shop and trying to ask for the owner and getting rejected and you're standing right in front of them. That sucks. But if you're not willing to sell, nobody else is going to, and it's never going to leave the shelf. And I learned that a product, not to say that we had the best product or anything, but a product, if it is, without distribution, it's literally nothing. And the last lesson to, to hit you with is that killing your baby is really hard. So it took us way too long to admit when time was up. I think we put off the decision for months, maybe five months, and even now, uh, and this is why I didn't actually want to talk about it today, but I decided to finally, is that it physically pains me to use the word quit. I never thought of myself as a quitter and it ended up being a good transition point in life. So I think the conclusion was losing 200,000 totally blows, especially when it's your own money. You know, it would have been nice to use some VCs money out there, but hey, not for me. The pref stack was me. What did it lead to? It led to the newsletter. Since I was learning so many business concepts at the time, I started MostlyMetrics.com. I developed the ability to put myself out there. I, if I hadn't been shut down by literally hundreds of like tour operators in person or hotel owners, or even sometimes like a family member saying like, is this idea really going to work? Then I wouldn't have had the guts to try something. I also learned the level of commitment it takes to take something from zero to one. It's really, really hard to build something from scratch. And it takes an insane amount of what I'll call irrational confidence 
You see it in the likes of Elon Musk, where they're just willing to bet the house on themselves. And the final takeaway from this is that I ended up landing my first CFO role at a venture-backed tech company in a marketplace space, probably sooner than I would have just given my age. And that was the biggest unexpected outcome of all of this. And so it happened a while after this failure, but I found somewhere to apply my marketplace knowledge. In, in essence, I found product market fit for what I knew and what my skill set called for. So I think that trying to start my own business, it was this new season in life that was so exciting, had the most exhilarating highs and the worst lows, but I had to close the door on it and start a new season. And the season that I'm in now where I have the newsletter, I have the podcast, and I have the CFO job, it's this virtuous cycle where I get to talk to smart people, I get to write about things that I'm learning, and I get to just talk about business and have fun with it. And it led me to that. I wouldn't have had it otherwise. So that's a story. I lost 200 grand, but I did come out on the other side smarter and happier. And Finally, for anyone out there who wants to start something on their own, even if it is a newsletter, a podcast, or business, if it doesn't scare the shit out of you, it's not worth doing it all. Now, onto the podcast. But first, give us five stars, please. Come on, help a brother out. I lost 200 grand. Give me five stars. It's the least you can do. All right, let's do it. I'm here with Razak Jallo, the CFO of Flowcast. Thanks for joining me, man. Hey, thanks, CJ. Really happy to be here. So I was watching some YouTube clips on you the other day, and it seems like the marketing department over at Flowcast, they might be double dipping and putting you to work, man, as a, as a spokesperson. And I got to give it to you, you're made for the limelight. So first of all, was that in your contract? Because if not, I think we got to get you paid more. <laughs> I like where your head's at on that. No, I, I, you know, it was certainly one of the reasons I was excited to be here to be you know, at a company where the customer is the CFO or the controller. So it was a lot of fun. So I wasn't expecting that, but they do a, they do a great job of slicing together quite a few different clips to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. It definitely did the trick. And it's cool to have you on the podcast because a lot of the people who listen are CFOs and finance professionals. So between you and Charlie of Carta, I, th I think we're going to create the Mount Rushmore here of, uh, of finance CFOs. It's a great, great pod. I really enjoyed listening to the back catalog. Thanks. So um, off the bat, I wanted to ask you, you brought the topic up to me of finance as being the curator of data. And so like I'm in data all day. I'm in financial data. I'm in sales data. I'm building out a business intelligence group. Can I get your take on what you think that means being the curator of data and also why you think finance should kind of step up and take that role in a company? I always tell new financial analysts and FP&A hires, and I think it, it applies a little bit to BI, depending on whether you're on the analytics side or, or the, the development side there as well, is that you're going to have more access to data as financial data and company data than anybody else. And think of yourself as a museum curator when you present. So that means, what do museums do? They don't take every single thing in the warehouse and just dump it on the floor and present every single piece of data every single time. They go back, they create a story or a certain exhibit that they want to show, and they bring up the most relevant, most interesting pieces to talk about in that exhibit. And so I always tell my financial analysts that I expect you to have all the math and every calculation and every level of detail all the way down, because that is how I know that you know the business well. But when you present, you have limited time and limited uh, people's energy to impact change. 
and you've got to use it very well. So I tell them to act like a museum curator, pull out the most important things that that a CRO or a CMO or a CFO needs to see and act on and, and review that. I, I love that analogy of being a museum curator because they're kind of going through and trying to pick out the nuggets of wisdom and also anticipate what people want to see. It also kind of reminds me, so I was I was an amateur boxer back in the day. I wasn't the best in the world, but I could take a punch. And I remember my coach used to say, when when someone comes back to the corner, you can give them one thing and they can take that and go with it and give them like the the top level data point or bullet point. But if you give them 10 things, you're really giving them nothing. And I think that goes a long way with finance people too, where sometimes, you know, the board will come back to the corner in a sense, and you'll just try to blind them with data. You'll, you'll be coming left, right, and center with all these different data points. But at the end of the day, you give them everything, you really gave them nothing. Yeah, there, there's a course out there called Precision q and I often have my teams train on it. Everyone, every time I've done it, they've loved it. But it teaches people how to answer questions succinctly. So if someone asks you, what drove this $10 million variance? It teaches people instead of listing 50 things, say there are 50 things, here are the top three. And if you want to know the next 47, I can list those too. So that conciseness helps with communication between finance and business partners. So I want to, I want to go back to your early days as CFO. So you're walking in the building for the first time. You're ta- you're stepping up to, you know, take the the head role there. What kept you up at night those those first few months at, at Flowcast? I walked in what I felt was a really good position. There was a lot of shared connections, a lot of similar investors that were in my prior companies. So I felt like I knew the team well. I knew what success looked like. I was coming in. There's a lot of people validated that that what was underneath the surface was also on the surface and there wasn't a disconnect or, or any things to be really watching out for. The biggest thing I thought was going to be my biggest stressor was the there was a lot of change on the FP&A team. So rebuilding the FP&A team, uh, I thought was going to be my biggest stressor. It's actually something else, a little bit of a curveball. So I came in right after we had closed around a Series D, thought all the the all the rounds of raising, I was far off. I didn't have to worry about it. But uh, another investor came in a few months later and said, hey, those guys who did your Series D, they're really smart. I'm sure they're going to make a lot of money on this. Tell you what, we'll throw in more money, another $100 million, and we'll double your valuation because uh, we want to get in too. And it was tempting. Like, you know, you chase those vanity numbers like, oh, look, like we can say just a few months later, our valuation doubled and we've got more cash than we could ever know what to do with. And we debated on whether we should do that a lot. That was my biggest stressor. And ultimately, we, this is context. This was uh, late 2021, so uh, kind of the peak of a market. And we ultimately decided not to do it, which was, in hindsight, really good. We decided we didn't have a plan to spend the money in the next 12 months, so we shouldn't raise around and add dilution. And it really helped us. As multiples came down... We were still hiring like crazy and we had a low 409A valuation. So our equity packages were worth a lot to bring in new talent. Whereas every other company kind of had a lot of employees that were underwater on their equity. So we were allowed to not only retain our talent, but add a lot of talent in that time. So that, but that was a big stretch. That was a tough decision. The, the vanity numbers were tempting. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And if you don't mind, I want to drill into how a CFO thinks about dilution. Do you think about that as a tax just to play the game? Or how do you, how do you size that up? 
I mean, it depends on the type of dilution. Um, I look at dilution as something really attractive to gain and retain talent. So I look yeah. at that equity as something very valuable. And a lot of the employees that we like are really blind to the long-term vision. So they're very excited and very keen on, on getting equity within Flowcast. As far as dilution on the cap table for, for rounds and raising more money, it is. So you, you want to get as quickly as you can to growth and profitability so that you don't have that big tax as you go forward. But the, the cap table and the balance sheet are, are assets for the company to use in different ways. And, and if you misuse them, there's examples very recently. If you look at, at WeWork and SVB recently, they had trouble because they, they didn't have a strong balance sheet, which is, in my opinion, very related to the cap table. It's hard to balance. And I think you did a big thing by choosing, it was really the decision you, you made not to do and, and kind of walking away from that offer because I get torn sometimes and a lot of people were at companies in 2021 and they didn't know what they were going to spend the money on, but they said, Hey, you know, let's take the money, put it in the bank and forget about it. But at that point, you've also taken on the bigger valuation. And with that comes a much larger forecast. Yep. And if you don't hit that, then um, all your existing employees, their equity is not as valuable as it was. Yeah. Valuation is a gift and a curse. And I think everybody is finally coming around to that, you know, two years out from that period. I got to ask you, so now you've been in the role for a few years now, what keeps you up now, if you're being honest? There's one item that's kind of far above all others. It's really team bonding and cross-functional learning in this remote world. You know, I've had this experience a few times coming in, you know, obviously with, with Looker and then going to Google and going work from home during, during COVID, as well as Flowcast and now a hybrid, but primarily remote environment, that the people who had strong in-office relationships before they went remote are able to maintain those and still learn at that same level. And the ones who are coming in to a fully remote for the first time it takes longer for them to build up those trusts and relationships because the the nonverbal and non I guess uh, written indicators where something is is going wrong just aren't as visible in a remote environment. It's very easy for me to sit in the office and see who's still stressed out working late and realize, hey, maybe we should go help that person out because something's going on over there. It's a much more silent pain when you're remote. It's hard to tell whose area is on fire at the moment. It's forcing all of us as managers to evolve in how we manage and measure things. So it's causing all of us to evolve and, and document and measure even more things that um, it's hard to do. I don't have a solution for it. I'm not sure there is a solution. I've talked to many, many people. And if anybody yeah. has a great solution, I'm always open to it. And um, when you came to Flowcast, what was your first hire? And, and I ask because I'm not a CPA by trade, so I knew day one I needed to get my ass in gear and get a great controller. I was very upfront about what my shortfalls were or what I didn't know. You come in day one, what are you putting a rec out for? So I've done a lot of research before I got there. Luckily, um, you know, we had a, a great controller and accounting team in place. I think day one, I really wanted to build out the FP&A team. So two major hires across FP&A, one for the go to market and one for the corporate side. And then the third piece was building up a new org on the BI side, which uh, I felt like with the fast growth of the company, data availability and democracy was important for everybody to be able to make quick decisions. Most companies struggle with that as they go from a smaller company where everybody's in the room and you can make decisions quickly and you have visibility over everything to larger companies where 
you can't have every single decision roll up to the, the CEO. You need people to have goals and optimize within those goals. And they need data cross-functionally to see that, right? Like if they don't have that visibility, let's just use an example. Marketing might be optimizing for one metric, but if they don't realize that metric costs finance 10 times more than the other metric, they can't make those, those smart trade-offs. So with BI, teams can make those smart trade-offs in a decentralized manner. I love that. The way you said that you're putting almost decision-making power back into the hands of department owners, because you don't want your CMO, I don't know, calculating CAC payback period in a bubble, thinking it's going to work with your budget. But if you give them a business partner to do it alongside them, it's going to jive with the rest of the P&L. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to kind of look at things holistically and not just finance have that vision, but for everybody in the company to have that vision. I don't know if you'll have a hot take on this, but I like to ask people, where do you think RevOps or SalesOps should sit in the org? Ooh, you know, it can, it can sit in a lot of different places. I've seen it, uh, you know, obviously sit in the CRO. It can be somewhere between CRO, CMO. I've seen it also sit in finance sometimes. I've always said that's one of those things that really depends on the people you have. Whoever has the right talent to do that is where it should sit. Talent to do that. Do you mean kind of background or how to use metrics? Could be background, could also be just overall skill set, whichever C-level person has the right skill sets for that. I personally prefer it in the CRO land. And the reason for that is I think the the sales ops team, while they do have financial responsibility, ultimately they need to be hand in hand with the AEs to earn their trust and to really be able to, to be that voice of the AE when talking with finance in a more balanced way. So I believe you need sales ops to be both bad cop to sales, but also be able to um, to represent sales at the company level. Yeah, advocate for sales. Could someone yeah. argue that potentially signals may take longer to bubble up if it's under the CRO? Like, hey, you know, this, this was a hard week. Maybe we'll just kick the can down the road, a bit of whistling by the graveyard, if, if you think about it that way. I think that could be true, but I think, you know, I'm just such a BI guy. Everybody has a dashboard. Everybody knows exactly how the week went. So it's not really easy to hide things like that. Um, even leading indicators, we, we have a lot of daily exec dashboards that will highlight that. So I haven't run into that, but I could see how that might be uh, the case for other companies. Yeah. The example that I remember Ethan Schechter, VP of sales at Sneak had told us was that if there was like a big deal on the table, like an enterprise deal, $400,000 at a SaaS company, and it pushes to the next month, that may be something that you kind of hit pause on telling people. But I get where you're coming from because to a large extent, BI has democratized to look into the org. If something's going well, the dashboard isn't going to be green. There's other cool tech out there too. Um, I'm sure Clary's not the only one, but Clary has you know deal prediction where it can look at um, you know how many interactions and what was said in those interactions to predict the likelihood of a deal. So there's also uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it AI, but uh, algorithms that can help highlight things that aren't coming up through the uh, the normal telephone game of of communicating forecast. Yeah, we're definitely getting smarter on that front. Switching gears a bit, so you were at Looker and you were preparing for an IPO, and then this small Bay Area company by the name of Google swooped in and bought you. What did you learn in the transition period that happens when a company is acquired? Yeah, it was it was my first time being acquired. 
I think anytime you're acquired, there's a lot of pain with it. So let me start off by saying Google is phenomenal. If you're going to get acquired, there's no one better than Google. It's a bunch of smart people. They've got a good business and they treat everybody really well. So that said, you're still getting acquired. And I guess what was surprising to me is that uh, first context, again, this was right after Brexit. So we had to go through regulatory approval. So it was a very, very long transition before when we thought we were getting acquired to when we actually closed, I think six months later. Wow, and so six during, months. That's, yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's CMA. That was a time I think everybody was like picking on Google uh, that year. And during that six months before the deal is approved, you are supposed to do everything as if you are a standalone business. So you can't start joint planning with Google. You can't make any decisions because you're getting acquired by Google. You have to be able to, if the deal is not going to approve, go on as a standalone business. That is the, the theoretical piece to it. But the reality is everybody in the company knows that we're probably getting acquired by Google. So I would say it, it certainly puts a lot of uh, friction in the gears on decision-making and passion for what you're doing to have kind of be in limbo for that long. And then, you know, you drill down one level. Let's just talk about the finance and accounting team. The accounting team, you know, their jobs were not going to be going forward at Google. And so that's a really long time for them to come into a company where they're supposed to be IPOing. And they're all excited because everybody wanted to IPO. That's a career goal for a lot of people. Yeah. And then to have kind of that taken back for people who are hired specifically to IPO. And so... Keeping that team engaged and motivated was was really hard. My, my hat's off to the Looker accounting team that uh, took so much pride in their work and kind of still busted their ass the whole time to, to keep getting things done and to keep moving forward, even with that kind of looming in the background. But hey, instead of a great IPO, you're going to spend some time just transitioning and integrating and, and then move on is, uh, is, is tough. So you just got to have a lot of pride in your work to keep that going. That's a huge mindset shift. I don't want to understate that because there are whole departments that are brought in to help a company IPO. And now you're undergoing something where your job could potentially be impacted by it. Yeah, it's always extra hard on the on the finance and accounting teams because that's generally the, the pieces that don't go over in M&A. And so you had to go through two extra board meetings after that. It Was it kind of just hurry up and wait? It was interesting because I think there was a lot of, uh, there was just a lot of stuff that was in process for IPO, it just kind of came to a halt. Everything yeah. from an S1 and everything else. And also, we didn't know it was going to be six months at the time. We had no idea. So every month is like, is it going to be this month? Is it going to be next month? You don't know. Uh, six months. Is it going to be a year? So it's hard to be in limbo for that long. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I feel like that Activision Blizzard deal took like eight years to close. I don't even know if that's closed yet. I should probably watch the news better. Um, so, so now you're now you're at Google. People always put their practices kind of on a pedestal, and I always push back like, "Hey, you know, forty six billion dollars of free cash flow does cover up a lot of sins." Did you did you learn anything cool over there from either like an org design standpoint or framework standpoint? I mean. Coming into a place that has its own distinct culture, that that was probably uh, a bit of a change. Yeah, definitely. I'd say the cultures weren't that different at a high level, like a lot of similar culture behavior, but there was a few key differences. I mean, we obviously had a little bit more of a Santa Cruz vibe. We were based in Santa Cruz, so a little bit more of a Santa Cruz vibe than a, uh, than a Bay Area vibe. 
And then also, I think just Google is is so large and there is so much dependent on things not breaking. They have a strong culture of checking with every single person across the company to make sure your change isn't breaking anything. And I think that came, my interpretation is that came out of their search business. Don't break something for, for millions or billions of people. Yeah, for make sure four you're, billion you're people. For, yeah. <laughs> but coming in as a company that's like fast growing startup, B2B SaaS, like not not that background. It, it was a little bit of a culture shock to say, hey, we all agree this is a good decision. It's going to take me a few months to meet with 20 different directors to kind of get movement on this. That was a little bit of a culture shock for us. Um, but the Google Cloud had a really good vision on what they wanted to do and what they wanted to be. And so we were part of kind of the, the SaaS vision, not so much the consumption vision in there. And it was really interesting to see like how they how they engaged with customers. All the big ones do this, but kind of the, the large commit on spend and then using that spend on products down the line. There was a lot of really interesting stuff in there on how they've created a marketplace uh, for products within the Google Cloud uh, ecosystem. It's wild how many products they have to sell. So, I mean, my mind's just turning right now with how these customer engagements must go down because with a lot of their products, it's kind of like the Nespresso model. Like we'll give you the coffee machine at, you know, at cost and, uh, you know, we'll just sell you the coffee every month. That must have been pretty cool just to see how they think bigger about what a customer could be and how, I mean, the wallet spend is must be enormous. It could be, my mind's going right now, a thousand different products. Maybe kind of a curveball question, so apologies ahead of time, but did you learn anything about how incentives work at Google? Like, how do you essentially buy or incentivize people to sell one thing versus the other? You came from a company, Looker, that was multi-product in a sense, but at the end of the day, it's a BI tool and the reps are selling a BI product. You're at Google now. How do they steer people in the right direction and how is finance, do you set the numbers right? Yeah, I don't want to give away too much of, of what Google's doing for themselves, but I can talk generally. Like the way to do it, obviously, anytime you want to get Navy's mind share is to have them get paid and especially quota relief on whatever uh, you have. So to get to the top of the list first is getting quota relief. And there's a there's a reason most of these large companies like don't want to give that out freely. They want their reps actually booking incremental, not just selling what's already what's already committed. And then within Coital Relief, well, how do you get that? The thing is the product needs to be a strategic priority for the company. Um, one of the things that, that we had at Looker is that we noticed when customers used Looker, they used way more of whatever their analytics platform was. They consumed way more data. Yeah. And so Looker became a strategic priority for, for all of the, before the acquisition, for all the, uh, the BI warehouses. Because, hey, if we sell Looker with our product, the customer will use more of our product. Yeah. That's not just more revenue, but that's more um, more engagement from the customer as well. It's kind of the the gateway drug. You give them Looker and then, you know, the net dollar retention off the charts because of what it comes with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but back to your main point, like it's, it's about being not just the dollars you deliver, but are you delivering a, a lot more value down the line from a strategic perspective? Got it. And you... Happened to work at an, at a, uh, another small uh, name called Apple. This was now on the hardware side, and I've I don't think I've ever talked to someone on the podcast about their experiences in hardware. But you're back in SaaS. I'm curious if you picked up anything 
from Apple, how they go to market or how they build product that, you know, impacts how you think now back on the SaaS side? Yeah, you know, Apple's, it's interesting because it's, I mean, it's such an amazing product that has ton of, tons of vendor power. It's just one of the few products that when they release will actually drive customers into stores. And it's got probably one of the most complex supply and demand math problems that I've seen. We had everything except the Apple stores there. So all hardware for all, you know, North America, South America resellers and matching up every single SKU of hardware to be in the right store at the right place for the right customer is, is actually a pretty tough problem to solve. And I, I think, I'm not going to say everyone should do hardware, but anyone who does hardware will have a, a real appreciation for not making mistakes in what they're doing because they're a lot more costly in hardware than software. And that that prepared me well, actually, for my, my next gig. I, I did FinTech at Lending Club, which matches borrowers and investors for peer-to-peer loans. And so it's, it's again, it's, I've noticed on your blog, you try the marketplace business. It's really hard to match supply and demand yeah. when it's more of a matrix than a one-to-one ratio. And that, that's, that's less impactful, but still impactful in SaaS, right? We do that same thing in terms of where's the demand, which market segments, which regions, how that works through sales and through product. Um, there's a lot of supply and demand matching. It might be a little less punishing than, than hardware, though. Say more about why it's more costly when you make a mistake in hardware. Is that because you just sent like a million iPhones to the wrong city? Yeah, or or just the wrong iPhone to the to the right place. So an example might be we had just launched the 5C, which was kind of like a mid-lower tier phone. It wasn't the flagship phone, but we had it in all these cool colors as well, and you could also get capacities. And so, you know, trying to organize that across 15 plus thousand locations. Um, can be really hard. And do you send the wrong one to the wrong store? So should you send the high capacity 5C in yellow? Should that go to Sprint at the time? Because Sprint sold a lot of yellow phones and 5C was cheaper than the flagship. Or since it's high capacity, should you send that to Best Buy? Because the Best Buy customers are more likely to demand uh, pay at a higher price point of higher capacity. And so if you send those to the wrong retailer, that's really hard because they're just not going to be able to move them ever. Or if you just send them to the wrong store at the right retailer, now you got to pay to ship them back again. And it's really a lot more costly to start shipping things store to store than it was from the original distribution center out once to everything. And this is just, this is just on the demand side of the equation. <laughs> the supply chain is, is a, another beast entirely. I've worked at software companies that were hundred percent channel. So everything went through a disty and a reseller. What you're describing sounds like 10-dimensional chess and that on steroids. It's uh, Yeah, you can't just predict uh, ARR and ACV. You need to know every SKU and where it is and, and manage that inventory everywhere. Because if a store is out of stock of that, you might be missing a sale. But if they have too much stock on it, they might not get through it before you release the new phones. So it's a, uh, it's oh. a big math problem, but it, it teaches you the power of the details matter. <laughs> details do matter. So you're trying to tell me that Apple doesn't do their planning and supply chain in an Excel spreadsheet? Uh, you'd be surprised how much of the bottoms up stuff comes from Excel at some point. I think that's the other trick to it. It's so unique per store and per reseller that you really have to have like a bespoke model for each one. Like we, we tried many different tops down models to just allocate everything. And it just created way too many issues um, at the individual store and SKU level. 
This is super fascinating. So you're saying for each like reseller, you had to have an individual supply and demand model? I can't speak to what they're doing now, but when I was there, yes, we yeah. did for all of the, the top 15 or so resellers. Uh, and we had a lot of support from our supply chain as well that would, would also look at things um, on a SKU level on inventory and helping us manage that too. Yeah, I always joke that I have it easy in the software world because I don't like sell something that's physically real. But like if I had to ship a Peloton bike across the country, it would be a whole different math problem. Easier is one way. Yeah, I tell you, we also have a lot more control and impact on the number. There's less other things that can go wrong that screw us up. Right? We don't have to worry about a, a ship getting delayed or dropping a shipping container in software, which is nice. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you've worked at places like Google, Lending Club, Adobe, Apple, places with brand names in that have a lot of strategic minds seemingly come out of them and go to work at other places. Can you think of any decision-making frameworks that you as a CFO carry now that came out of any of those places? Um, there's a couple that, that stand out. I remember uh, one of the ones that stands out is zero-based budgeting. and Everyone's heard of that. We, we did that at Adobe, uh, which was great. Uh, but it's it's a heavy lift. And so I think at Apple was the first time we did this and I've carried it since then is that instead what I have my teams do is a 20% model. So what that means is it's too hard to literally go through every single line item in the big company and, and zero-based budget. If you can do that, great. Most people get frustrated and your business partners hate you and you end up spending all your time arguing over stuff and actually making decisions. So we've done a 20% model where it's come in before you ask for a single new thing, you already know the strategic priorities. Show me the 20% you did last year that you're going to stop doing for next year so that you can first solve the new strategic priorities with that 20% before we ask for more uh, more headcount or more funding above that. And I think that does a good job of just keeping hygiene going without the, the burden of zero-based budgeting. And so that one's been been huge for me. The, the other piece is we... It's actually not those, it was actually a lending club. We had uh, a model that helped us decide what new product features to build that we liked a lot. It was a triangle between engineering, product, and finance, uh, helping the, the chief, the head of product there. And what it did is we would say, okay, product team, it's your job to scope what the product is and how many uh, dollars it's going to deliver in revenue. Wow. Engineering, it's your job to size how many weeks and people that takes and um, commit to shipping it on time. In finance, it's your job to, to figure out the cost versus the benefit and help the head of product prioritize which ones are going to be done and then come back later and hold everybody accountable. Did we ship on time? Did the scope creep? Um, did it actually deliver what we thought it was going to deliver? And I thought that one was really powerful. All right, baby, we're cooking now. This is this is I'm <laughs> I'm in the zone. So, all right, first first one. Let's let's do this. So, you ask leaders to identify twenty percent of spend basically that isn't going to come back next year. And is the idea behind that that there's going to be embedded waste or things that go away that you can use to refund new stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, there's things that were a priority last year that aren't a priority this year. There were one-time projects that were done last year that. We should be able to repurpose those people's time to do new projects. It's general hygiene and it definitely helps. It helps people think first about what can I do better with my current budget before we start stacking on the, the next year's investment. 
And what are some of the like questions or comments you'll make to people when they inevitably say, no, 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 I, I need just more on top of that. I'm going to do all this and more. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point to great time to engage with finance. Um, I, I will generally say, hey, I, I see these metrics. I see in this one metric, you invest, you double in spend, only improvement by 20%. Yeah. Seems like you hit point of diminishing returns. Maybe we should take that doubling back out and use it for something else, right? Those types of things we can tee up at a high level. And generally, like I like my FP&A team to be really embedded with their business partners. And so they will already be teeing up a lot of these things for business partners before planning begins. Normally, the more senior members of leadership have, have been through something like that before and, and aren't as shocked by like the baseline is not just you get everything you had before. It's did you optimize is a better way to say it. I love that. Optimize. You got to clean up the backyard before you can put in the patio. I just made that up on the fly. I don't know if that makes any sense. So the second framework you went through, I've also heard that kind of called an R&D payback period. Are you you trying to figure out the order of magnitude of how big the revenue line item is going to be? Or are you just trying to get people to commit to like when this thing goes live? There's certainly an aspect in the math of like what we're working on next should have a good ROI, whether that's short-term or long-term. Long-term ones, obviously, you're not going to measure right when you ship. But ultimately, it's really more about communication paths and accountability so that, um, you know, engineering feels strong that when they bust their butts to ship something and they ship something great, that it was, you know, the right scope from product and actually delivers revenue because they want they want us to be successful yeah. too, right? And pro- product wants to know like, hey, I did a really good job scoping this perfectly. I'm going to get the revenue and engineering went and executed on the right timeline, right? And and sales wants to see that that constant, um, and so is finance that constant like flywheel of we're shipping new products, we're making more sales, or we're we're generating a uh, more revenue, and that hey, we actually prioritize the right thing. So we saw a huge, huge increase when we started doing this in terms of how much incremental revenue was delivered versus just kind of doing it based on gut. Gut works great. When you're a founder and you're in that, that that initial scaling phase, but eventually the founder's not making every decision, and you need to you need to decentralize decision making and have more people make decisions, and that's when like an ROI model can really help. I also feel the engineers and product people actually get super amped up when they figure out how much revenue what they're building is going to generate. They're like, "I did that. I created you know a hundred million dollar revenue line," and before they just thought they were building a cool product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gets everybody can can celebrate something together. Even going back to sales and saying, "Hey, why did we close this deal?" It's because we had this feature this year that we didn't have last year. Like, great job, engineering, great job, product. Yeah. Right? It's it's fun to do that. It is fun to do and, and link it all the way through. Tell me what you think the qualities are that separate a good versus a great CFO. I've been lucky, and I've worked for like several great CFOs. So a CFO's job is to help the CEO execute their vision. And a good CFO can follow a path to help get the CEO there. And a great CFO can help forge that path. And I'll explain the, the difference there. You know, I've, I've had some great CFOs in the past. Joe Moran at Looker built an amazing culture that blended kind of the Santa Cruz vibe, which is where the company was based, with all the things we needed to do to scale. Uh, going back further, Mark Garrett at Adobe, phenomenal CFO who who helped them transition from the box software to subscription software. Not many CFOs go out there and say, I'm going to cut revenue in half and it's going to be a good thing. So a good CFO would go out and say, well, here's the benchmarks. Everyone else is here on these metrics. We should be here. And they can help a CEO kind of get to those benchmarks. 
I think a great CFO can see beyond that and understand what's unique about their company and their vision and their situation and figure out which metrics they're fine with being way outside the norms because of a specific reason. And so Mark's example is perfect, right? We had investors in Adobe that were trading us quarterly based on revenue. I remember vividly, uh, he was talking about all of our investors trade us quarterly. They have no idea what ARR is. If, if he said ARPU, I bet they would have laughed. They'd probably never heard of that before. And so he's like, yeah, this is the right thing to do for the customer. It's the right thing to do for the company. I'm just going to find investors who, who know what a subscription business is and what those metrics are. And you know, he, he helped lead us to that success. So um, I, I'd say when, when you're a great CFO, you can, you can forge the right path, which is not just blindly following the benchmarks. In that Adobe example, the company became the poster child for transitioning from a perpetual box model, buy it once and keep it, to subscription. And now it's traded as one of the best subscription multiples out there. Yeah, it was 2009 when I built that model. It was, uh, we were $17 to $19 stock. And it's, why not? <laughs> but in retrospect, it guts to make that call back then. I know we're all sitting here now saying amazing call, but like you said, you had to take your lumps to get there. Yeah, I had the little, I had the financial model for it. I was originally put in Creative Suite to figure out how to forecast revenue better. I was like, hey, look, actually units are declining as a problem. We can't get the value out of the software. We can't ship software on time because we can only ship every 18 months in the perpetual model. And it all proved out like, hey, I think we'd, I think we'd triple our share price if we moved to subscription. There was an Excel model, the guts and the foresight to actually do it from Mark Garrett and Sean, the CEO, still the CEO there. Um, it was really just amazing leadership. And so I think that's, and they've made many, many great decisions since then. But that was quite inspiring to me at that point in my career. I was like, hey, this is, this is what a great CFO does. And I like that you called out that a great CFO will recognize that some numbers can look wacky because it it's all in service of the larger vision. If you were just a numbers person, you would have never made that call. You'd be like, no, we got to look this way. And that would have probably constrained some creativity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's hard, especially when you're forging something that someone's never done before, like that Adobe example. Maps are made for tourists, not explorers. <laughs> that is a great line. <laughs> it's from Jim McKelvey, who created Square. Ah, <laughs> Yeah, nice. it's called it's from the Innovation Stack, my my favorite book. For back in the day for my 30th birthday actually. And this was when I was in the throes of of failing uh trying to make that marketplace startup. My wife got me uh a necklace pendant that said that on it that uh maps are made for tourists, not explorers. So, I don't know why I thought I'll, I'll bet you I bet you learned a lot during that that uh helps you every day from that on. Anything anything jump out? I wouldn't so it was the most painful experience I ever had both on my wallet and my in my mental stability, but it got me comfortable making sales, which I think help as a CFO because you're always selling the company, you're always selling yourself, and you're always selling a larger story. It's not just about the numbers. And I was terrified of even just making a cold call at that point. Like you couldn't pay me to get on the phone. But once it was my company and I had to do it, I knew no one was going to make the call. Even in person, no one's going to walk into like a, you know, a boat tour shop and, and try to sell them on something. And the second thing it did is it made me live and breathe and learn how a marketplace model works. And like you had hit on earlier, it's not a simple model to get down. You're really building two businesses at once when you jump out of the plane and hoping that the parachute works on, on the way down. You have to build supply and demand in the liquidity side. And I learned that the hard way 
And now I'm the CFO at a marketplace business. So like at the time, I would have never thought that it would actually position me for the role that I'd be best suited at. I think they, you know, if I look back on my interview for this job, I was just pulling things off the shelf that I knew about marketplaces. And they're like, this guy gets the business model. He's not just a numbers guy. He's, he's lived it before. So it's hard to look back sometimes and feel like I can't believe I failed. And in, in the moment, it totally sucks. But you come out on the other side and you realize that it was probably preparing you for something bigger all along. It's great to hear it's helping every day and exactly where you landed. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. I guess it's all in pursuit of a, a larger vision. You just don't know it at the time. So thanks for asking me that. No one's ever asked me on the podcast. <laughs> Good. You've got a lot of interesting topics on here. Hard to find one, one that you haven't covered. So I do want to ask you, long ass lightning around here, what's something you've screwed up before in your career? You got to give us an example and be honest with us. All right. Uh, before I landed at Looker, I knew I wanted to go into B2B SaaS and, or B2C SaaS. I wanted to go into SaaS. And I took a job at a company, and, but I didn't yet have the right VC network to understand like everything that goes into selecting the right company to go to. And so I ended up at a place that there wasn't the right fit for me. In fact, I got in there and like in a couple of weeks, like, oh, we're out of money. Um, so that, that wasn't great, but it was the mistake was not the financials, actually the board packages all look fine. It was the, the lack of common network. And so that luckily what came out as I did build that network when the looker and now I have that network. And that was a big reason I, I landed at Flowcast is that there was a lot of shared people and shared connections and there was a, a good understanding of what success looks like. And at the top of the pod, you hit on that. You said that you had a relationship with the investors once you came in. So the transition period, less things probably kept you up at night. Yes, absolutely. There was, there was a lot of uh, research. And in fact, myself, like I met probably with most of the team even before my first day. It was important for me to kind of hit the ground running. And there was cash, importantly. Yes. That always helps. Okay. If you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? It's always easy to say this once you're kind of later in your career, but worry less about the salary and more about are you at a great company with a great boss getting to work on a lot of cool things? I think when people, I certainly do this when hiring, it's hard to find the diamond in the rough. It's much easier to say these people were at companies that scaled very quickly. So they were probably doing things right. And the odds of them learning the right way to do things is higher than the one person at a bad company who happens to know the right way to do things. That take more risks. Uh, those would be the things I'd say. It's so true. To younger people out there, don't play hardball over five to 10 more in salary. Look, a rising tide truly does lift all ships and it'll accelerate your learning curve. I'm going to add one more thing to that. Younger Razak, I know you're a finance guy and you care about every dollar, but spend the extra dollars to live near work and don't waste your time commuting. That would be my other tip. <laughs> that that producer Nancy clipped that one. We, we, we need that one out there. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I, I commuted every day for two years from the North End in Boston to Providence, Rhode Island when I was working Oof. a private equity job. And it was in like an hour each way. And I would leave the house at like 7.30 a.m. and I wouldn't get back till 10.30. And I think it, I think it took years off my life. I really did. <laughs> I took the train yes. every day. I called it life on the rails. It was bad. It doesn't worry you out. You just have you get home. There's no energy to work out or anything. You're kind of just dead. Oh not yeah. Commute. <laughs> yeah. All right. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. 
And with that, it's time to rep yo stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Can you walk me through your finance software stack? What tools you're using today to get the job done? Sure. And I am I'm a huge believer in hiring the best and retaining the best. And if I bring people in and I'll give them a great tech stack and a bunch of manual work, they, they won't be happy, right? They want to be intellectually yeah. engaged. So really like our tech stack. Uh, this isn't finance, but I think a lot of things start with Salesforce in a lot of ways because that's where the revenue is coming in. From Salesforce, we have uh, MuleSoft to get that data out of Salesforce into NetSuite for us. We obviously have NetSuite then. On the AP side, we have Coupa to do most procurement for us. And of course, we have Flowcast kind of running through a little bit of everything. So it's our own product, helps us with the close, helps us with workflows across commissions and uh, payroll across ADP and Captivate. As well as I'm, I'm missing one here. I just thought of it, but I'm missing. Oh, an adaptive for our planning tool. So nice. those are kind of the the core, and they all kind of link together either through NetSuite or Salesforce, yeah. and then the broader systems all link into our Snowflake and Looker BI stack, which is just as important to me. For I know it's not technically people don't see it as a finance stack, but I see finance as the governor of all metrics. And so I, I care about it. <laughs> yeah. I cut a check to Snowflake every month as well. So uh, that's a sexy stack. I like that. And what's the most recent tool you uh, you bought? It's been a while, I guess. I guess Looker when I got here on the finance side. So uh, there's something to be said for buying tools and, and making sure you don't just get them run, but you get them optimized. I find a lot of tech teams will run from one tool to the next tool, especially in scaling and yeah. growth mode. And then you've got this wake of just tech debt of tools that kind of were, were half implemented or implemented, but not enough to actually save people time. And so going deep on making the existing tools work great is helpful as well. That's awesome. Last question here. I have a feeling this is going to be a good one. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen someone try to expense? Oh, man. Uh, some good stories there. So I'll give you three. Like I've never seen anything like fraudulent. It's just people not knowing what's not expensive. I've seen things like a gold flaked hamburger at a meal. I <laughs> I saw someone decide they didn't want to fly cross country. They wanted to drive and tried to expense the miles for driving cross country. And I'm like, oh, we're only going to pay you for the flight. And, but my favorite one by far, like you can't make this up. One employee felt their neighbor at their cube was having a bummer of a day. And so they hired a singing telegraph clown to come to the office and sing them a song to cheer them up. That was not expensive. Hey, you hit on it earlier. When you're in person, you got to build that trust. And this person could tell that they were struggling and needed to pick me up. Exactly. Exactly. Were you you there to see it though? Did you see that? I was not. It was a different floor. It was not my floor. (laughs) That's an all-timer. All right. So... PSA, do not hire a singing clown. That is not expensive. I love it. It's just funny. person had one expense, I think one expense outside of meals in their life, and it was singing clown. Yeah, it's a memorable one. Or Zach Jallo, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a pleasure of a convo. 
Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.